You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Nikkel Smith. And I'm Christina Loeb. Florida teachers are learning how they rate compared to colleagues across the state. On Wednesday, the Florida Department of Education released data showing which schools and districts had the most highly effective teachers. As State Impact Florida reporter John O'Connor reports, nearly three in four Florida teachers earned satisfactory ratings. The Florida Department of Education released report cards for more than 200,000 teachers in the form of new evaluations. More than one in eight Florida teachers earned the top rating of highly effective. Slightly more than half earned an effective rating. Just 2.5% of teachers were rated in one of the three lowest categories. Those teachers may receive more training and mentoring. Districts have yet to report ratings for about one quarter of state teachers, including most teachers in Miami-Dade and Palm Beach counties. Researchers have criticized the ratings for having large margins of error. Teachers complain they can be rated based on students they have not taught. In Tampa, I'm John O'Connor. Meanwhile, Florida's interim education commissioner says early glitches are no reason to slow the implementation of the state's new teacher evaluation system. Pam Stewart gave that response Thursday to lawmakers who were worried about problems that plagued the first release of data under the system a day earlier. The Department of Education took down a website showing nearly 97 percent of Florida teachers were rated effective or highly effective within hours of putting it up. Stewart said it would It will be restored once corrections are made. The problem was that some districts submitted duplicate information. The evaluations are based in part on tests that measure student progress. Stewart acknowledged another problem is not all students are tested, but she said that should be fixed in the future. And as 2012 wraps up, we'll be, taking, we'll be talking to community leaders in Alachua County about how they think the year went, as well as what they're looking forward to in 2013. Today, we're kicking off the first of WUFTFM's going, ongoing year in review series. We took a look at what the year has been like for Alachua County's education system through the eyes of its superintendent. From scholastic successes to disappointments from the state's capital, I talked with Alachua County Public Schools Superintendent Daniel Boyd about highlights and lowlights for the school district this year. Well, uh, Nicole, I would say the highest point, uh, without doubt, would be the passage of the uh, one mill, which is a renewal of the one mill ad valorem property tax to support uh, schools. It uh, passed in 2008 with a 63% approval rating. In 2012, November, it passed with a 68% approval rating. And uh, that would have to be the high point for all of us who work in the public school system because it is an affirmation of the good work that goes on in each of our schools by our public. And uh, it's very humbling to work in, in in this school district with the kind of community support we have, and it really means a lot to me. We opened a, a fire training facility for uh, firemen and emergency uh, medical workers at the uh, Lofton High School. I think that's a, a, a real high point because we're able to uh, continue expanding our career technical programs for for students uh, in uh, so they can uh, secure employment right after high school or with two years of training at the college level. I think that's a, a wonderful testament to what's going on in career technical education in Alachua County. 
uh, our students' uh, scholastic aptitude test scores continued to rank uh, as the highest in Florida, and I think that's a real testament to our teachers and students and their parents. I wouldn't want to leave the uh, Mu Alpha Theta Buholtz High School National Championship Mathematics team out of it being one of our great high points. It's not often that uh, that a school can win a national competition, and Buholtz has done it about six times in a row, and I think that is a real testament to the fine leadership that we have at, at Buholtz High School and also the quality students we have. And I think when the Washington Post lists the the best high schools in America, they included Buholtz, Eastside, Gainesville, and Santa Fe High School on that list, and that's pretty good uh, rating right there. And I, I'm I'm very proud for for all the students and teachers and parents who are affiliated with those four schools. So. Okay, okay. Quite some accomplishments there for sure. Um, what do you think were some of the most difficult aspects of this year for Alachua County Schools? Well, I think the most difficult uh, things we deal with uh, come out of Tallahassee uh, as a result of our legislature passing laws that uh, they're unfamiliar with the requirements of, uh, the unreasonable expectations that are imposed upon our students and our teachers. In the spring, when uh, the uh, Florida Comprehensive Assessment Test writing uh, exams were uh, administered uh, and they graded them, they found that only 25% of the students in the state of Florida were proficient and they had to quickly abort those records and then change the the passing score. And I think it it should have been uh, an indicator to those in Tallahassee that continue to uh, blindly prod along setting these standards that they basically don't know what they're doing. And uh, the most recent fiasco out of Tallahassee had to do with the teacher assessment program uh, where the value-added model was employed, whereby the state is rating teachers uh, on FCAT performance of students, whether or not they even teach the students. Okay, so what are some of the changes that you want to see made next year? What are some of the things on the Alachua County Schools um, New Year's resolution list, per se? Well, I want to continue to work uh, with our instructional programs and continue to uh, make them the very best we can for boys and girls. I want our athletic programs to continue to be great. I want the the children to participate in them, enjoy what they're doing, and uh, take it to the next level. I want our teachers to be happy and well-paid and, and content and supported in the classroom. I want our uh, all of our employees to feel like they're valued, that uh, their work is important, that we're truly making a difference in the lives of young people and preparing our students for a successful future. Uh, I hope our state legislature will find ways to adequately fund our schools. Uh, I hope that uh, the continuing barrage of legislation that uh, creates more problems, more bad than good, will cease. Uh, I wish they would trust us and the 67 districts of the state of Florida to do the right thing, to uh, place students first, and to support us in our efforts. That was Alachua County Public Schools Superintendent Daniel Boyd. 
UF and Shands is expanding their world-class emergency care beyond the main medical campus. Earlier today, administrators announced plans for a new $10 million freestanding emergency department to be constructed in northwest Gainesville. The 8,500-square-foot facility will provide full service to patients and 911 calls while operating around the clock. Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Shands, Ed Jimenez, says the new emergency department will mirror that of Shands Hospital on Archer Road. It's a uh, freestanding emergency department, so it's the level of care that you would expect in an emergency department. So it's got real doctors and real nurses and uh, the technology that you would come to expect in an emergency department. So um, if you can picture in your brain what you see on the Archer Road emergency department here at Shands at the University of Florida, you basically would get that there as well. So um, it's certainly not a small-scale doctor's office that's pretending to be an emergency department. It's also certainly not a trauma center. You know, we're not going to have helicopters and land there. But it's what you would expect um, in an emergency department in our community. So uh, I think it's that level of care. Jimenez says with the growing population, the need for a new department became unquestionable. We've been watching the uh, what I'll call a suburban sprawl uh, for a while now. Uh, it's pretty clear that the growth in population is happening to the north and west of us. So you know, if you look down Newberry Road uh, with Tioga and Jonesville and out to Newberry, the, the suburban sprawl is happening, and it's been going on for a little while. And so we've, we came to the realization you know, a while ago that we needed to have a more geographically convenient location for health care services. With renovations to an existing building underway and the opening of a new doctor's office, Jimenez says the Northwest location will complement existing emergency care facilities. Recently, uh, you've seen that we built a building on 39th, and that'll be a medical office building, and that opens in January. Uh, this past uh, month, we opened up a doctor's office out in the uh, Tioga area. And so putting a freestanding emergency department in the Northwest, again, is, is just another piece of the medical services that we think are needed in that part of town. When we look at the information of where patients come to both the College of Medicine physicians and the hospital, it, it's clear that there are people that are driving distances to get to health care. So this is a way to make it a little more convenient. Jimenez adds the new facility will be most beneficial for Northwest residents who will be able to get fast care closer to home. I think from a convenience perspective, folks that live north and west of town will have a shorter drive to get to a level of emergency department that's delivered here at the Shantith University of Florida. So I think that's a convenience factor. And for those that have had to make choices about where they want their health care, um, you know, they, that choice gets a little easier. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of people that can benefit. Certainly from a convenience will be those that live to the north and west of town. Not only will the new department improve patients' access, Jimenez says it will undoubtedly clear up the waiting rooms. I think anytime you add capacity into the system, um, so, for example, adding another emergency department to a town that has two, I think you would naturally expect there to be uh, shortened wait times everywhere. So the new building would have shorter waiting times because it's new population, uh, and the two hospitals should experience uh, shorter waiting times uh, because we're adding capacity into the system. Uh, so I, so I, that's certainly what I would expect. Now, whether that's true, we'll have to kind of wait and see. Jimenez adds the new facility will help stimulate the city's economy.
these are they, these would be new jobs. So we certainly will be adding to the economy in that regard, um, which you know we think is our responsibility. Chance and and the College of Medicine believe in our stewardship to this community, so this fits right into that. The new department is scheduled to be up and running by July of 2013. Welcome back. This week, we're taking an in-depth look at health care reform in Florida and the implementation of the federal government's new Affordable Care Act. The federal government has set a deadline of December 14th for the state to respond with a plan for setting up health care exchanges and dealing with the expansion of Medicaid. Legislative leaders have responded by requesting an extension from the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. Tom Parkinson from WMFE Act State House Democratic Minority Leader, Representative Tom Thurston, why the state legislature is just now getting started on this task. The fact that we're starting out behind is no fault but our own. I mean, you can go back as far as back in uh, 2010 when uh, then Speaker Dean Cannon sent out a letter uh, which was dated October 19, 2010, effectively halting any uh, movement from the agencies that would be required to uh, implement the affordable health care. So the fact that we have a, a looming uh, deadline of December 14th is completely our own fault, and it, it sort of make a mockery of the letter that was sent by the current leaders, uh, whom are not responsible for the delay, I understand that, but who are asking now for time to do that, which was intentionally delayed by the Speaker back in 2010. Well, that's the past now, as you said, and we're, we're moving forward. And can you kind of, if you could, I'd like you to kind of walk me through the process. How do you foresee this going forward? What, what will be among the first steps of the, of the process in the legislature? Kind of walk me through well, it, if you well, would. Well, I, I'll tell you this. There are critical things that have to be done, and that's relating to the exchanges. And, and because of what you said, the deadline, that we've got to make decisions on whether we want to implement the exchange, whether we want the federal government to do it, or in the case of some states where there's some type of a hybrid between the state and the federal government. Now, now that's the most uh, important thing that we have to do, and that's because of the, guide, the deadlines that we've allowed to uh, creep up on us uh, unnecessarily. But one of the most important aspects of it is a decision on the Medicaid expansion portion of the Affordable Health Care Plan. That that would be, uh, in my opinion, one of the most critical points because rather the state... Uh, decide that we want to uh, run the exchanges or we want to defer to the federal government to run the exchanges, it's, that's going to happen. Um, so, you know, we'll have that discussion. We should be able to make those decisions. But I think a more critical point, a more critical point is the fact that, you know, this isn't about turning down money from a high-speed rail. This is about lives, the lives of uh, some of the most needy and vulnerable citizens of the state of Florida. Well, Governor Scott's primary objection and, and that of many of the legislative Republicans, as I understand it, is that even though the federal government has agreed uh, to pay for most or all of this Medicaid expansion, for at least at first, the state eventually is going to have to take on that responsibility, and that will cost taxpayers in Florida millions of dollars. And, you know, we're, we're just getting back on our feet here in Florida after a devastating economic recession. How are we going to be able to afford that? Well, and, and that's uh, another point that I think uh, is without merit. Uh, the 
fact of the matter is that we're paying for the care for these indigent individuals right now in the form of emergency room services, that those citizens who are fortunate enough to have insurance, we're paying for that uh, through increased premiums. The most expensive way is the way we're doing it now, through emergency room services. Those individuals use the emergency rooms as their form of uh, insurance and and their health care plan. So if we incorporate them, we're certainly going to do it at a lesser cost and that you're going to be able to catch uh, illnesses before they become critical where there is a need uh, for emergency room service. So that state Democratic Minority Leader Representative Perry Thurston talking with WMFE's Tom Parkinson. In the next half hour, we'll hear from Rep- Republican State Senate President Don Gates on the issue. In the first half of our program, we heard the viewpoint of State House Minority Leader Representative Perry Thurston regarding health care reform in Florida and the implementation of the federal government's new Affordable Care Act. Now we'll hear from Republican State Senate President Don Gates for his view on the new law and how the state legislature will go about implementing it. States have a federal government deadline of December 14th to submit a plan for setting up health care exchanges and dealing with the expansion of Medicaid. Tom Parkinson, Tom Parkinson from member station WMFE, asked Senator Gates to explain why the state has waited until now to get started. Well, I think uh, the rest of the United States of America was also uh, wondering what would happen as far as the future of Obamacare is concerned. And even the president is calling it Obamacare. I think it's a matter of letting the people of the United States make a decision about whether to go forward with this administration. They've made that decision. About half the people in the country said, nope, we don't want it. A little more than half said, yep, we do. And the Supreme Court said most of Obamacare is constitutional. And since that decision, we have had specific questions going to the federal government from the state of Florida asking for clarification so that we can make the best decision for how to implement it in Florida how to deal with exchanges, how to deal with Medicaid expansion, how to deal with some of the other areas where, um, to be fair to the feds, they're building an airplane in flight when it comes to Obamacare. They're trying to define new ways of doing business, a business that's never been done before. Will it be a state exchange, a federal exchange, a partnership exchange? Will we expand Medicaid? Will we expand it all at once? Will we expand it in stages? And the other myriad of options and decisions that have to be made in order to implement what is an extraordinarily complex law. Now, among the areas that you're going to be dealing with first here is going to be how to set up these health exchanges. Will those exchanges be run by the federal government? Will they, they be run by the state government uh, or private companies or, or a combination of those? How, how do you see that working? That goes to the heart of some of the questions that we've asked and other states have asked Secretary Sebelius to help us answer. Would a Florida exchange, whether it was operated by the federal government or the state, be an active purchaser of health care? limiting the number or type of plans to participate in the exchange, or would the exchange certify all qualified health plans? Would the plans participate by region, or or should they provide coverage for the entire state? And would would there be cost variances? You know, the way the federal government handles Medicare, uh, every standard metropolitan area in the state of Florida has different Medicare rates. 
Uh, would that be the same uh, if it were a state-operated exchange or a federal-operated exchange? Would we have discretion? Or will the federal government treat every part of the state the same, even though health care market basket costs are different in different parts of the state? Will there be two sets of books, one for Medicare, one for Obamacare, in terms of rates and reimbursement and costs? And, and, and how will the surcharges that might be applied by a federal exchange differ, if at all, from the surcharges applied uh, for a state exchange? These are details. This is deep in the weeds. But these are things we need to know before we, uh, before we make a decision about whether to have a state exchange or a federal exchange or a partnership exchange. Uh, you've said that you have a number of other concerns regarding the implementation of the uh, federal health care law. Uh, tell us about that. What, what are some of the, the problems that you see going forward uh, implementing this plan? To provide millions more people with access to health care by handing them a card that says that they have access to health care is a noble goal. But to actually provide the access, you know, that's an operational necessity. And one of the things that we have in Florida is a relatively inelastic supply of physicians. So to give a few hundred thousand people or a million people a Medicaid card and said, now you have Medicaid, that's fine. But if there's no doctor to provide them with care, that's another problem. So one of the things that we have to address in the near term and the long term is the supply of physicians in our state and the willingness of physicians to see Medicaid patients. That's why I've worked hard to try to raise reimbursement rates for physicians to encourage them to see Medicaid patients. And that's why we'll be working on the missing piece of health care reform, the part that the feds forgot. And that's medical tort reform to make it more likely that more physicians will see more Medicaid patients and therefore health care won't be just a cruel joke and a broken promise, but actually can occur. Senator Tom Gates talking with WMFE's Tom Parkinson. Changes in health care can affect not only practicing doctors, but also medical students just coming into the profession. Farrah Dasani reports. Kristen Giordano is a first-year student at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. I actually was one of the many people who knew they wanted to be doctors since they were very young. But six years ago, as an undergraduate, she says she grappled with her decision on whether to go down that path. I had this dream of what a physician was, and it was someone who spent time with their patients, diagnosed them appropriately, took care of them, established a relationship with them, and that was what I thought being a physician was as a child, and it should still be. But as I shadowed physicians in college, I saw that that was not the practice reality for many of them. Lower reimbursements, the struggle to pay for medical school, the mounting paperwork, and less time with patients. And I could see at that time there was struggle in our government on what to do with health care. Giordano and other doctors in training will enter medicine at a time of change within the field, especially as the Affordable Care Act unfolds. It's something Dr. Natisha Ames, a third-year internal medical resident at Florida Hospital in Orlando, is aware of. I think it's definitely a different perspective than, you know, some of the older physicians that are kind of leaving practice. I've kind of seen things change right in front of my eyes as far as this new act uh, coming along. Within a year, she'll be a full-fledged physician working in Central Florida. 
there are still a lot of questions in my mind about the Affordable Care Act. I can't say that I'm an expert by any means. The law is multifaceted, and no one really knows exactly how it'll play out. It affects doctors depending on their specialty, the patients they see, and the location where they practice. The act, at its core, will expand health care insurance coverage to millions of Americans. As a primary care provider, Ames says she sees this as something positive. But having more patients also raises concerns. We will have to be doing a lot more paperwork, a lot more documentation. It could kind of hinder the time and relationship we can build with our patients. I think in some ways it is building on trends that were already happening, and I think that might be its biggest fault. UCF medical student Kristen Giordano says the Affordable Care Act falls short on addressing issues like paying for school and tort reform. Despite those concerns, and after two years working as a physician's assistant, Giordano chose to become a doctor. And if that meant additional time and financial sacrifice, I was willing to do that for the betterment of my patients. A 2010 study showed 95% of medical students agreed the healthcare system needs reform. Some believe physicians should no longer play a passive role in shaping policy. Giordano's classmate Joe Gill sees the health care law as an opening for future doctors. We're at a period of time where we have a great opportunity to make a change for the better, and it can be positive or negative. It all depends on what we make of it. More than anything, I saw it as a challenge. All right, so now, what are the most likely differential diagnoses at this point? Dr. Maria Canarazzi teaches internal medicine at UCF. She says she reminds her students that regardless of how the Affordable Care Act plays out, key aspects of the profession will stay the same for all doctors. It may affect reimbursement. It may affect the panel of patients, the types of insurance that we see, those kind of things, but it's not going to affect what I do with with a patient in an exam room. It should not affect the core of what I do, taking care of people one person at a time. After all, that's why most people choose to become a doctor in the first place. I'm Farah Dasani in Orlando. The U.S. is taking up a proposal that many hope will increase pressure on the Cuban government to release a U.S. aid worker. Matt Lazlo reports from Washington on the effort to free Alan Gross. While working for a contractor of USAID, Gross broke Cuban law by handing out Internet equipment to the country's small Jewish population. He's now been held for three years. This week, the Senate is expected to pass a resolution calling for the immediate release of Gross. While it's non-binding, Democratic Senator Barbara Mikulski says it sends a clear message. Mr. Castro, a message from the United States Senate. Let Alan Gross go. Let him go today. Let him go now. While imprisoned, Gross's health has deteriorated. He's lost 100 pounds and suffers from severe arthritis. Maryland Senator Ben Cardin says these are reasons enough for the Castro regime to release Gross. Cuba should release Alan Gross on humanitarian reasons. The health issues are also well known. The loss of weight, what he's gone through, the mental anguish, etc. Judy Gross is suing USAID and its contractor for allegedly not properly training her husband before sending him on a dangerous mission for the U.S. government. The two organizations have reportedly stopped paying Gross's salary. I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. This week, the World Society for the Protection of Animals is hosting its first global symposium in Florida. It's significant because Florida is one of the hot spots for debris and trash that is taking a toll on marine life, especially endangered species. Patricia Sagastumi from member station WLRN reports. Crab traps like this one are attached to buoys by long lines of rope. The same goes for lobster traps. 
boat-based rigging, lines used to secure nets, along with plastic, packing bands, and nylon fishing lines, all have been found entangled around marine life. Christy Hudak is a biologist from the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies in Massachusetts. They study animals entangled along Florida's shores. Some of them survive, and others aren't so lucky. One way to lessen the problem would be to make fishing lines stiffer to prevent coiling. That's where manatees are becoming entangled. They run into the line, they panic, roll into the line, and then they become entangled. A lot of fishers, such as the crab and lobster industries, use the same plastic rope that often entangles endangered species such as sea turtles, dolphins, and manatees. Efforts to trace where the entanglements originate is the next step. Tom Matthews is a biologist with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. He says the stakes are high for marine life and our local economy. Even the loss of one dolphin in some of these areas where it's a small population like Biscayne Bay, if we lose one of these animals, the Endangered Species Act might shut down the entire fishery. So that's the big hammer over everybody's head. The conference concludes Thursday. I'm Patricia Sagastuma in Miami. Dry conditions are making north-central Florida increasingly vulnerable to forest fires. As Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Adam Pages reports, residents play an important role in prevention. It has been over a month since North Florida has received a heavy dose of rain. After experiencing above-average precipitation during the summer months, a recent decline in rainfall has increased drought conditions. Wildlife mitigation specialist Ludi Bond says the lack of showers is beginning to take its toll. Right now, we've, you know, as we know in this area, we haven't really seen any, any type of rainfall in, in over a month. Our current drought index is close to 500. Here in the Wakasasa District, our average drought index is 510 on a scale of 0 to 800. So that makes it uh, very close to considered severe drought conditions. Bond adds that while Florida residents shouldn't expect a downpour, there will be a slight chance of rain sometime next week. The type of terrain found in north-central Florida, she says, assists in the spreading of grass fires. You look around north-central Florida right now, all of the prairies and the grassy areas are brown and dry, which makes them extremely vulnerable to wildfire and the rapid spread of wildfire. According to Bond, dry grasses and shrubs tend to catch fire the quickest, and between November and February, there's an abundance of both. The winter months are typically our, what we consider our grass fire season in Florida because more of the grasses um, are readily available to burn with the dry conditions and the hard freezes that have come through the area. Low humidity, lack of rainfall, and strong dry winds are all components that create extreme fire danger. Bond says with all three of these potentially in play, people need to do their part in order to prevent forest fires. Because of the lack of rainfall in the last several weeks, everything is very vulnerable outdoors to burn, all the vegetation. So what we're asking residents is to use caution. There are not any burn bans currently in the state of Florida, but conditions are dry and fuels are vulnerable to burn. So we ask that residents never leave any type of outdoor fire unattended. Um, if you're going to have a campfire, a warming fire, clear the ground down to bare dirt, and of course, never burn outdoors when it, there's very windy conditions. For fire safety tips or to check out the current fire conditions in your county, visit floridaforestservice.com. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Adam Pages. Man's Best Friend makes the holiday season less stressful on the University of Florida campus. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Dana Winter reports the students and animals both benefit.
As finals come to a close at the University of Florida and the holiday season begins, stress can tend to be at an all-time high. The Alachua County Humane Society helps with that this year, bringing man's best friend on University of Florida campus to help reduce stress. Events like this benefit both the Humane Society and students on campus. Volunteer coordinator for the Alachua County Humane Society, Kim Hubner, says it's not just the students who enjoy themselves. It's also great for our dogs to get out and get a field trip and, and get some more time with people because they love attention and affection, so they're going to just be pleased as punch today. <laughs> Residence advisor for Graham Hall at UF, Janae White, says she enjoyed planning the event. I know personally that I have a lot of residents that have dogs back home, and um, I would see a, little bit, a few of them homesick and that they really miss their dogs. So then I thought it would be a good idea to try and get some dogs from the Humane Society just so then the residents could come and pet them and de-stress. Students say they're thrilled about the event. Yeah, I have a dog at home, so I love seeing these dogs here. They're really cute, and it's nice to have a break from studying. I've volunteered before with dogs, so like when you walk them around, um, stores we had it at my hometown, and so people can adopt them. The Alachua County Humane Society passed out flyers on volunteering opportunities today. Hubner says getting the word out about the Humane Society is one of the best ways to help the animals. There are a lot of people in our community who still don't really know who we are or where we are or what we do. So getting into the community and doing these kind of outreach events is really important for us because while we're there and kind of giving these students an opportunity to de-stress from their exams, we're going to be telling them about volunteering opportunities, we're going to be telling them about our mission, things we do so they can you know then kind of go out and spread the word in the community. Hubner adds one of the best things about the holidays is the increase in animals getting adopted. Holidays traditionally are a common time to adopt a pet. As many pros as there are for adopting, Hubner warns about pet ownership. During the holiday season, uh, it's really important to remember that when you adopt an animal, it is you are taking on a large responsibility. A lot of times people think, oh, wouldn't it be great to you know, get my kids a puppy or a kitten for the holidays? And they don't always stop to think that that puppy or kitten is a responsibility they're taking into their home for the rest of that dog or cat's life, and they aren't always prepared for responsibilities that come along with a young puppy or kitten. Our advice to people around the holidays is to adopt, but make sure that you're really ready for that responsibility of having an animal first. Anyone thinking of adopting a pet can always go to the Alachua Humane Society. Another option, Alachua County Animal Services, is hosting an animal adoption event this Saturday, December 8th from 1 to 4 p.m. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Dana Winter, reporting. University of Florida students hosted the 17th annual poinsettia sale today at Fit Field Hall. Proceeds from selling the holiday plant fund the Environmental Horticulture Club's annual trip. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Talia Medina has more. Originally a decorative fall plant in Mexico, poinsettias have become an integral part of the holiday season in the United States. Students of the University of Florida's Environmental Horticulture Club cultivate and sell poinsettias annually to help fund their international trip in May. President of the Horticulture Club, Maxwell Mercer, says the trip is a great learning experience for everyone involved. Through that international trip, we're seeing how agriculture is done in other cultures. So it's a great experience to learn 
the difference between how we do things here and how they do things over there. This year, students will be traveling to the Netherlands. The students started growing 98 varieties of poinsettias in August and have a total of 4,000 plants on sale. That was Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Talia Medina. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Christina Loeb. And I'm Nikhil Smith.